Uh, I'm excited to be here today. I'm very excited about this particular portion of scripture. Um, I uh, didn't plan to preach it. Uh, it just kind of randomly fell, but it was one that, that I hoped I would get to speak on um, because I think there's so much in this, uh, in this small story that, teach, that can teach us about who we are, how we see ourselves, who God is, and how God sees us. And so there's a lot of depth and richness I'm excited to get into. Um, but before we jump in, uh, I want to start with a story about the first time I filed taxes. This was a big moment for me. I was probably like 18. I was working full time. I was in school full time. Uh, and like most college students, I was very, very broke. I had no money. I would scrounge together, you know, quarters to go to two bros for lunch. I lived on two bros. Um, it's not good pizza, but when you only have 17 quarters, it's the best meal you can get, right? Uh, and so I was really excited about finally filing my own taxes because I had heard stories of the tax return. I'd never experienced it, but I'd heard about it. You file taxes and the government hands you money back at the beginning of the year. It's like a second Christmas, right? So I was very excited to do it. I was broke. I had nothing to my name except my 94 Honda Civic that I bought using... <laughs> Thank you. It was a great car. I bought it using my, uh, my financial aid. Um, I took my whole financial aid check and I bought a cheap, broken down used car. And this is why I had no money and I was so desperate for this tax return. I was terrible with my money. So I get on TurboTax, I start filing, put in the first few lines. And it's like over $1,000 in, in the little total on the bottom. I'm like, bet. Perfect. This is amazing. So many things I could buy. I probably would have blown the whole check in one shot and bought something really silly, right? But what happened was, as I further filled out the form, that total number started getting smaller and smaller, right? I went from like 1,200 to like 950. I was like, all right, that's still a good amount of money. Then it was like 900. Now I'm starting to get nervous because I'm seeing a pattern, fill it out more, it's down 600, 550, 450. Now I'm really upset because that's not that much money, even for a broke college student. There wasn't much I could do with that. I finished the state, uh, I, the federal, I move on to the state. When it's all said and done, my total is negative $300. <laughs> And so what I thought was going to be a shopping spree turned into me begging my parents to bail me out of this, of this hole that I had gotten myself into. I thought I was going to get a check. Now it was $300. I went from $0 to negative $300, right? It was a terrible experience. This was my first experience with the IRS. This was my first experience with filing taxes. Uh, and if I'm being honest, it hasn't gotten too much better over, <laughs> over the subsequent, uh, subsequent years, right? Nobody loves the IRS. We comply with it. We do what they tell us to do because we don't want to go to prison. Nobody loves it. Nobody gets a letter from the IRS in the mail and says, yes, can't wait to see what this is, right? You get a letter from the IRS. I actually got one like two, two three weeks ago, uh, and my heart sank. And I was like, dang, I was just thinking, how much money am I going to have to put out to pay some type of bill that I didn't even know I had to the government? <laughs> that I have no say in, that I have no control in, right? 
They not only take money from my taxes, from my paycheck every week, and then put it to God knows where. I don't have any say in where this money goes, but I have to give it to them. Uh, I don't even have a chance to give it to them. They just take it. And then at the end of the year, sometimes they decide that I didn't give them enough and they ask me for even more and I have no choice but to pay it. Nobody loves the IRS. Nobody loves taxes. This is an institution we deal with as a necessary evil for the most part, right? If there's anybody here who works for the IRS, it's not about you. It's, we still love you. This is, this is a welcoming place. Uh, <laughs> But as much as we dislike the tax system today, it does not hold a candle to how the tax system uh, at the time of Jesus was viewed by the Jews, right? If you were a Jewish tax collector, there was nobody more disliked. There was nobody more hated. There was nobody more despised in all of the community than the tax collector. And today we're going to read about Jesus calling a very disliked tax collector to be his disciple and talk about the scandal that that was. But then Jesus takes it a step further and he doesn't just call this one tax collector. Then he goes and has a dinner party with a bunch of tax collectors that everybody hated and loathed and despise, and we're going to look at what that teaches us about who God is, how he sees us, and how we should be seeing ourselves. Let's read um, from Luke 5, 27 through 32. If you have your sermon sheets, uh, your, your service sheets, uh, the scripture is on there. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus, to Jesus's disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, <clears throat> healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the often uncomfortable truths that we find in it. God, we pray that you would uh, pull away our preconceived ideas of, of who you are and what you want us to do and that we would be able to receive your word with openness. Let our hearts be fertile soil for the seed of your word to be planted today. Amen. So what's happening here? This is the third uh, calling of a disciple that Luke lays out for us in his gospel. Now, the first two disciples that Jesus called we're sinners, right? Because we, we, we heard a couple weeks ago that when uh, Peter realizes who Jesus is, he says, get away from me. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a filthy person, right? But even though they were sinners, they were well-respected in society. They were fishermen. They had a good job. It, it, it was a respected occupation for them to hold. They were people that the rest of society looked at and said, you are contributing 
to society in a beneficial way. What you're doing benefits all of us. And so there was a level of, of respect and honor that came with, with uh, the occupation of fishermen. But Levi is unique. He's very different. He's the opposite. He's not well-respected. His profession by default meant that he was somebody who did not care about the law of God because the law of God would have prevented him from doing his job the way he had to do it. And we'll talk about that in a second. He was hated and he was despised. And so while the first two people Jesus calls are people everybody else can, can kind of get behind and be like, yeah, that's, that's a good call. I can see that. Levi's the opposite. This was a scandalous move. This was a crazy thing that Jesus did. TMZ would have been all over it. The shade room post would have been going crazy. Nobody would have been able to believe that Jesus was calling Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And that brings us to our first point, and it's this. Jesus sees in us what nobody else can. To get a full grasp of, of, of how unbelievable Jesus calling Levi was, we need to understand exactly how tax collectors were viewed in society at that time. So tax collectors were considered betrayers of their people. They were working with the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jewish people. And so the rest of the Jewish people looked at these tax collectors and said, you've betrayed us. You've turned your back on your people. You forgot where you came from. You're working with the enemy. And because of that, they were hated. On top of just working with the enemy, tax collectors were notoriously wicked, notoriously uh, evil, right? They were very dishonest. It was said of tax collectors that an honest tax collector was a starving tax collector. There was no way to do this job well without lying, without stealing, without an immense amount of greed. Being a tax collector dishonored your whole family. It meant you couldn't attend synagogue. You could not even attend a service in the synagogue with the rest of the Jewish people. You were, you were excluded from that because of your job, because of, of what you did for a living. Check this out. If you were poor, begging for money on the side of the road, and a tax collector came and said, here are some alms, here is some money, you had to turn it down because even a poor person was too good for the money of a tax collector. Imagine that. That's how despised these people were, that a poor person with nothing would be like, get that out of here. I don't need your money. Imagine. They were lumped in uh, 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 and thought with murderers and thieves. Just for collecting taxes, they said, you are as bad as somebody who has killed another person. This was their group. This was their lot in society. And so Jesus calling somebody like this, somebody who people viewed this way, was crazy. It's not what anybody would have expected. This is not the type of person that a rabbi would associate themselves with. This is the type of person that a rabbi would be far away from. 
This is the type of person who would stay far away from the rabbi. They had no concern about God's law, about the Torah, about synagogue, about society, about the Jewish people, about the Messiah. They cared about none of this. Their entire aim was to get as rich as they could by taking taxes dishonestly from as many people as they possibly could. And this is who Jesus calls into his inner circle. This is who Jesus walks by and sees and says, come and follow me. And it's because Jesus is looking deeper than everybody else. Jesus is seeing something that nobody else can see. Jesus is seeing something that Levi himself would not have seen. And so we see that Jesus doesn't care about social stigma or cultural opinions. The vision of Jesus goes much deeper than the vision of society, than the vision of individuals, than the vision of the culture. Jesus is able to see the disciple in the tax collector. His vision is much greater. Because not only is he able to see the disciple and the tax collector, but he's also able to see the sickness in the Pharisee. You see, Pharisees stood on the opposite end of cultural opinion. They were well-respected. They were the keepers of the law. They were the teachers of the law. They were the group of people that were telling everybody else, hey, we need to follow God's law so that the Messiah can come and save us. They were considered close to God. They would be like the pastors and the priests of our current time. And here again, Jesus doesn't care. Jesus isn't looking at them the way society looks at them. Jesus isn't looking at them the way the culture looks at them. Jesus is looking much, much deeper. And he sees a disease in them that the Pharisee can't even see themselves. And that those around the Pharisee can't see either. And the truth is their disease is far worse than the disease that they're seeing in the tax collector. Because the disease of the Pharisee makes them think that they're not sick at all. But Jesus sees this. Jesus is looking deeper than anybody else is able to look, than anybody else is willing to look. And he's seeing things that nobody else sees. And because Jesus is able to do this, because Jesus is able to see what we don't, what, because he's able to see what we won't, it allows him to be a friend of sinners. And this is important. Look at what happened when Levi decides to leave everything Leave his tax booth, leave his post, leave his job, leave his only way of, gain, of getting money, leave the rest of, of, of his profession. Look what he does next. He doesn't do what I've done. He doesn't do what many of us have done. He doesn't bail on his friends. He doesn't X them out. He doesn't delete their phone numbers. His reaction to Jesus is to immediately go and try to introduce all of his friends to them. You 
You see, a true encounter with Jesus should make you want to introduce everybody around you to him. A true encounter with Jesus shouldn't make you say, I'm now too good for everybody I used to know. I'm now too, too holy for my old friends. I'm now too righteous to talk to anybody I used to talk to. It should make you say, I need to get all of these people around Jesus as soon as possible. I know in my life, when I look back, I've done the opposite. When I, when I really began to take my faith seriously in, my, in my, my late teen years, I cut everybody off. I, I engulfed my whole world with, with this group of, of new friends that I found at church. And they were good friends. It was a good thing that I had that community. I needed it. There was nothing negative about it, but what was negative was that I distanced myself immediately from all of my other friends, from everybody I had gone through the four years of high school with, from everybody I had known before I began to take my faith very seriously. I created this immense distance between us. And now some distance is necessary, right? I'm not saying that a recovering alcoholic should go hang out in a bar with all his old friends. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I made a clean cut. And I said, unless you're in church, I guess we can't hang out no more. Unless you're in church, I guess we really don't have nothing to talk about. And this is the way I approached my faith early on. And as I've grown and as I've been a Christian for a bigger portion of my life, then now a larger percent of the people I know are also Christians and are also in church. And when I see Jesus, the friend of sinners, it's much harder for me to see myself as the friend of sinners because sometimes I feel like I don't know that many sinners. I mostly know other Christians. I'm mostly at dinner parties with other believers. I'm in a, uh, in, a, in a church planting class. And one of the exercises they had us do was draw like a little tic-tac-toe board. And they said, they said fill it out with names of people who, who are close to you, who don't serve, serve Jesus, who aren't saved, who haven't met Jesus yet, and use this as a tool to pray for them. In, in hopes of their salvation. And I was so ashamed at how long it took me to fill out those nine boxes. And I pose that to the people in this room. If you had to fill out nine squares of people who you knew closely, who you loved, who you were intimate with, who did not know Jesus, would that be an easy task? And if it's not, then we've become far from Jesus, the friend of sinners. That should be incredibly convicting. That shouldn't be a difficult task for us. I got nine names in. But I had to cheat a little bit. I put some family members I don't really talk to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I put some people that I'm like, I don't really think they're Christian. I don't really know, though, but I'm going to put them on the box anyway. I had to stretch a little bit, and that shouldn't be the case because what we see here is that Jesus wants to be close to sinners. 
And we see Levi give us a beautiful example of saying, I've come into salvation. I've come into relationship with Jesus. And so now I want everybody around me who doesn't know him to meet him, to have the same opportunity that I was given. And so here we see Jesus at a table with sinners and tax collectors. This was scandalous. This was a big deal. This made a lot of people very upset and very confused. If I can try to ground this with some modern day examples, it'd be for some of us like Jesus eating in a room with AOC, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton. For some others in the room, it'd be like Jesus at a dinner table having a friendly dinner with Trump, Tucker Carlson, and Candace Owens. I'm trying to cover all the bases here. It'd be like Jesus having a friendly dinner with a room full of people in Blue Lives Matter shirts. Or it'd be like Jesus eating dinner in a room full of people with Black Lives Matter shirts. Or if you're not covered by any of those examples, it'd be like Jesus eating dinner, a friendly dinner with Kanye West or with Taylor Swift. And I think at that point, we've covered 98% of the room. <laughs> this was a big deal. It caused a, a visceral reaction to the people who were witnessing this dinner, especially from the Pharisees. Say, well, like, how could Jesus eat with these people? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know what they do? Doesn't he know how sinful they are? Why is he not eating? Why is he eating with them? See, but here's the thing about dinner parties with Jesus. The dinner parties that Jesus attends are diverse and they're unusual, and they don't make sense, and they're not neat, and they're not clean, and they're not what we want them to be. And this is why, because the dinner parties that Jesus attends are a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Whether we like it or not. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared, the bulls and fattened calves have been killed, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guest, had, the, but the guest he had invited ignored them and went on their way, one to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, this is it. The wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with the guests. This is what's happening at Levi's house. 
Jesus is inviting all of those who weren't worthy of an invitation. Jesus is inviting all of those who don't deserve to be at a dinner with him to come in and to feast at the banquet with him. And the Pharisees are outside grumbling about it. They're upset about it. They're harassing Jesus' disciples about it. They're saying, why is Jesus doing this? Jesus should not be having this dinner. What they didn't see is that their rejection of this dinner Jesus was having was actually their rejection of the kingdom of heaven. And when we do the same, we in the same way are rejecting the kingdom of heaven in the way that the king of heaven wants to run it. We're rejecting the banquet of heaven in the way that the king of heaven has prepared it. The kingdom of heaven is not going to be filled with everybody you like and you love who agrees with everything you want them to agree with. The kingdom of heaven is going to be full of sinners and tax collectors. And so if this is what Jesus's table looks like, then I pose this question to us. Why don't our tables mirror this? Why don't our dinner parties, our banquets, the people we invite into our lives look the same as the people Jesus invited into his? Why do we try to keep our lives so neat and so clean and so tidy and so comfortable? If Jesus was a friend of sinners... And so we see that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that he's having dinner with them. Also understand that dinner was was an intimate thing. It wasn't like, let's go out for dinner once and never talk again. Dinner in society at the time meant that we're friends. It, It was a symbol of relationship, of acceptance, of love. And so if Jesus is a friend of sinners, then I think we should ask the question why. Because I think it's important to understand why he was at this table, why he invited the people who he invited, why Jesus chose to have dinner in this way. And it's this. Jesus is a friend of sinners because Jesus is here to rescue us. See, if we think Jesus' aim was simply compassion, then we miss out on what he was really trying to do. Jesus wasn't here, wasn't having this dinner simply to be compassionate to the sinners and tax collectors, but he was having this dinner to rescue them. In verse 32, he says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. The end goal of Jesus's banquet here is repentance. The end goal isn't a good, fun dinner. The end goal isn't good food and good drinks. The end goal is a relationship that leads to repentance, that leads to rescue. 
And this is the key. This is the double entendre to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you know you are sick, then you can be saved. But if you think you're well, you're actually sick and you're far away from my salvation. The irony is that the sicker we are, the closer to Jesus and his saving grace we are. But the day we wake up and think we're worthy of this salvation, the day we wake up and think we've done enough to earn his salvation, to earn his rescue, the day we wake up and think I do good enough now to rescue myself, beloved, we cannot be more dangerously far away from Jesus's saving grace. You see, if you can't see your need for salvation, then you won't see your need for Jesus. And this was the problem that the Pharisees had. The Pharisees thought they were good enough because they upheld the law. They did everything God told them to do. So they weren't looking for somebody to make them right with God because they had made themselves right with God. They weren't looking for somebody to save them because they had saved themselves by their obedience, by their works, by the way they chose to live their lives. But if the Pharisees actually understood the sickness in their heart, they wouldn't have been outside the feast grumbling about it. They would have been knocking on the door and saying, Jesus, can we come in? Can we eat with you too? Can we sit with the sinners and the tax collectors so that we too can be rescued, so that we too can be saved? But they thought they had saved themselves. See, this is the special thing about the church. The church is the only group. It's the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for your membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. The one requirement to membership of the church, of the kingdom of God, of salvation from Jesus is to be unworthy of it. The invitation to Jesus' table comes to those who know they are not worthy. And it comes to, to those who know they need rescue because Jesus came to rescue them. And so consider the relationships you have. Consider your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors who are not believers, who have not yet received this rescue and this salvation from Jesus. What is the aim of those relationships? Does your goal match the goal of Jesus? Which is not just compassion, but rescue. And I don't mean this in the cheesy, let me just run around and shove the gospel of Jesus down everybody's throat and then wash my hands like I did a good job and it's on you now, I told you what I had to tell you. but I mean in relationship, in messiness, in discomfort, in long-suffering, in closeness. Is your aim ultimately for their rescue by Jesus? 
I think about how often I've lost this thread in my own life. Right? I said when I was in my teen years, I excluded all my non-Christian friends. I don't do that anymore. I've learned and I've grown and I've matured. But my end goal isn't always rescue. Sometimes I'm just content with the friendship. Sometimes I'm just content with the casual dinner. Sometimes I'm just content with, with uh, small talk or, or aimless conversation. Sometimes I lose the thread of rescue and salvation. Sometimes I forget that they need to be rescued by Jesus the same way that I've been. And I'll tell you who convicts me the most about this is my kids. When we pray at the end of the night, my kids pray for their friends who they know don't know Jesus. It's a recurring theme. In conversation, my kids will say, Dad, does so-and-so know Jesus? And if we know for a fact they don't, they'll say, well, then they're not going to go to heaven. Their concern is, is they need to be saved, Dad. Their concern is how can we get them to know Jesus? And this is their heart. And I remember feeling this way when I was a little kid, but I've lost it over time. But this should be the aim of our relationships. This should be the heart behind every relationship that we have. If somebody in your life does not know Jesus, then beloved, they need to be rescued. And that should weigh on our hearts in a way that makes us open our lives to them, invite them in for dinner, and hope that they get to meet Jesus in the same way that we have. And so as we start to close and the band starts to make their way up, what we learn from Luke, what we learn from Jesus's dinner with the sinners and the tax collectors is that when we see ourselves as Jesus does, when we see ourselves as truly sick, as saved by grace, that we'll take a different posture towards the outcasts, towards the disreputable, towards those that we see as sinners, because we will understand that we're the same as them. We're no different. We're no better. Every human being is on a level playing field in the eyes of God. We're all sinners needing to be saved without the ability to save ourselves. And only when we understand this can we understand that, we're, that we are saved, not because of our own doing, but because Jesus has reached out and saved us. And this should make us eager to invite everybody that we know to come and meet Jesus. Too often we're tempted to yell from the inside of the house. We're having dinner with Jesus. We're having, we're inside at the banquet hall and we're yelling outside saying, hey, when you guys get it together, you can come in and be with us. When you guys finally realize that you're sinners, you can come inside to the banquet. But here Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us a more effective and a more loving way to treat and be with those around us. 
And so, beloved, consider your table. Does it look like Jesus's table? Is it messy? Is it unusual? Is it not what people expect it to be? Is it not what you expect it to be? Is it upsetting to some? Or does it more closely resemble the table of the Pharisee? Clean, neat Christians who can't be bothered with the likes of sinners. Who around you is sick today? Who around you is a sinner? You know it, and more importantly, they know it. Follow Jesus in this way. Make room at your table so that the same Jesus who rescued you can rescue them as well. Let's pray. Jesus, what a difficult thing you've laid before us today. What a heavy message you've given us. We want to stay so far away from the mess, so far away from discomfort, that we often forget that you came to seek and save those who are lost. God, realign our hearts. Make us view the world around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, the way you do. Let our hearts be burdened with their salvation and their rescue. And let us be eager to invite them to our tables to meet you, the only one who can save. Help us do this, Holy Spirit. Amen.